Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in land conservation or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work, has an interesting story, and loves the American West. My guest today is Chris Dombrowski. Chris is an author, poet, and fishing guide who lives and works in Missoula, Montana. As a writer, Chris is probably best known for his book, Body of Water, A Sage, A Seeker, and the World's Most Elusive Fish, which is one of the best books that I've read in years. He's also published several collections of poetry, and his newest volume titled Ragged Anthem will be released this week. When you merge Chris's decades of experience in the outdoors with his phenomenal skills as a wordsmith and creative, the end product is some of the most engaging writing that any outdoor lover could ever hope to read. Chris grew up in Michigan and was always drawn to fishing, hunting, and outdoor adventure. During high school, his favorite English teacher gave him a copy of A River Runs Through It. He devoured the book in a day, and from that point forward, he knew he wanted to be a professional writer living in the American West. Over the following years, he began fish guiding in Montana, attended graduate school in Missoula, and built a solid career as a working writer and poet. Along the way, he established friendships with such notable Western writers as Jim Harrison and David James Duncan, and he also established his nonprofit writing workshop, the Beargrass Writing Retreat. If you're interested in creativity, writing, or the writing process, then you will absolutely love this episode with Chris. We talk about that fateful day when he read A River Runs Through It and exactly how that moment changed his life. We talk about his work as a teacher and a guide and how those skills inform his writing. We also talk about his writing process and his writing studio, the importance of creating art with a disciplined workmanlike approach, and how he deals with any self-doubt that may come when publishing his work. We chat in depth about poetry And Chris offers some great advice for poetry novices like me who want to better understand the art form. We talk about specific writers Chris particularly admires, including John McPhee, Thomas McGuane, David James Duncan, Jim Harrison, and more. Chris also offers a ton of excellent book recommendations, discusses his favorite rivers in Montana, and offers some excellent words of wisdom for those who love the West. Thanks again to Chris for this fun conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. somebody for the first time and they ask you that question what do you do how do you answer that more and more i feel fortunate to be able to answer that question with i'm a writer you know yep um uh i used to do a lot of teaching uh and i've always or for the past 20 years i've guided fishing trips um and so a lot of times i used to say well i I teach this part of the year and I, um, I, I write part of the year and then I fish guide for, for the other part of the year. And people would always look at me like just with a kind of dazed or confused look on their face, you know, like, like, Hey, how on earth would you, could you parlay all those things and B, um, why would you attempt to do it? Uh, so more and more nowadays, I say I'm a writer, you know, I guide fishing trips in the summer, June through October, but even so that that's fudging it a little bit because I direct this nonprofit, um, writer's workshop in town. And, um, and as you know, I'm, 
you're probably a father and a, a spouse partner, um, first and foremost. Um, so, um, it's never, for me at least, it, it's never been a, a simple answer, but, um, I find more and more in, in all of my work that, um, that the, the disparate, uh, threads are, are becoming more and more braided, you know? Yep. Yep. And that's a, it's a saddest, that's a satisfying feeling, you know? Um, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk a good bit about, um, about body of water, but, um, for me, that was a book that I avoided writing for a long time. What I mean is I, I tried not to write about fishing, despite the fact that, um, you know, I'd fished my entire life and guided for most of my adult life. Um, but other than writing freelance articles, I really wanted to avoid writing a book about fishing. So, um, that book was a little bit of a, um, you know, I kind of reconciled that, um, that desire to not, um, to not write about fishing, uh, in such a way, I guess what I mean is, um, I, I had to face the music a little bit and sure. say, All right, you have these, um, these, a fragmented life. That's not, that's not so good. So let's try to patch it together and see what kind of quilt we can make, you know? Well, damn, I'm I'm glad that you came to that conclusion because that book was unbelievable. And I just kind of happened across it. I, I heard you on Steve Rinella's podcast. I was like, that guy seems super cool. And then the book sounded so awesome. And so I immediately ordered it. And I mean, it was one of the best books that I can remember reading in a long time. And I'm not I'm not like going overboard, kissing your ass. I mean, that is 100 percent true. And I I just couldn't I couldn't believe how awesome that was. And I think everybody needs to read it. Um, whether you're interested in fishing or the Bahamas or any of that, it's just, it's really amazing. So let's just talk a little bit about that. I mean, how did, how did you decide, when did you decide like, all right, there's a book here. I need to write a book about this. You know, that's an awesome question. And, and, um, like many things in my life, uh, the, the obvious, um, is, has been easy to avoid, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I really had, um, I had a hundred, when I first went down to the Bahamas, it was just as a gift from a, from a friend, a real good friend and client who, who wanted to drag me along to a, a place he'd spent much of his, um, his angling life, the, at the East end of Grand Bahama called Deepwater Key. And, um, so he said, you know, you got to come along. And, um, on that first trip, I was fortunate enough to meet a man named David Pinder senior, who was, uh, the first Bahamian bonefish guide. He went to work in the late sixties for $5 a day, uh, and at an, in an industry that, you know, is now basically the crux of the Bahamian economy, yep. uh, to the tune of 150 million a year or so, um, and and so Miller, my friend, and, and another really wonderful guy, um, friend of mine from Baltimore, said, "You realize that you've met this man who was the cornerstone or the taproot of an industry, and you guys kind of made a connection here. Do you do you think you could kind of plumb this for research? Maybe there's a book here, etc." And I was still. Um, what I would call a poetry purist at that point. Yeah. I was writing some nonfiction. I had written some nonfiction articles, freelance pieces that 
maybe delved fishing and the outdoors a little bit, but I was really trying to keep that world separate from my, my practice of poetry. Um, I don't know. I can't really answer that question for you. You know, why the, why did I establish that as a rule? Um, so early on, I have no idea, but I did. So, um, I went back down to the Bahamas and I was, I was there under the auspices of writing like a, a where to piece for outside magazine. And I met senior David Pinder, uh, is referred to in the book as senior. I met senior again. And I thought, God, this guy is kind of a singular human being, um, in, in the sense that he has spent, um, so much of his life, all of it really on one two mile Island at the end of the archipelago. Mm-hmm. And, um, I started to think back on my favorite books about, about the natural world. And, um, one of them is a book, you may know, it's called the meadow by James Galvin. Oh yeah. Yeah. Nobody's yeah. ever mentioned that on this podcast, but that one is, that is a unbelievable book and it's, it's got a poetic tone to it. I can understand why you, you'd love that so much. Sure. Well, right. Uh, and Galvin is a poet, you know, he teaches at the university of Iowa. He's a, happens to be a real dear friend of mine. And I started to think about the character in that book, Lyle, you know, that mm-hmm. gentleman who spends his whole life up on the mountain and I, I, I started to think of senior in that way. And that was probably the first inkling um, that I had as to how I might go about constructing a book around this person's life. Then I wrote about 125 pages and um, was pretty much ready to throw them away. I had um, a couple of agents interested in another nonfiction book proposal that I ultimately jettisoned, but, um, neither one of those agents was interested in, a, uh, at the time anyway, a, a book about a Bahamian hermit who had started, a, an industry around, uh, you know, the pursuit of a small, virtually inedible game fish, you yeah. know? Um, and, uh, su- surprise, surprise, but, um, <laughs> Uh, I, I sent those 125 pages to a real dear friend of mine, a novelist named David James Duncan, who probably everybody uh, in the West knows for his book, The River Y, and, yep. and the novel, The Brothers K. Uh, and David was good enough to say, um, hey, you know, this isn't a book or even half of a book, but there's some good writing here, so so don't throw it away. And then I was lucky enough for it to fall into the hands of um, – uh, a couple editors at um, at Milkweed Editions. That's my dog you hear groaning at me. Oh, go for it, man. That's standard on this podcast. We've had so many dogs barking. That's No, that's that's what we want. <laughs> okay, good. Um, so I had a, a good friend at, at Orion Magazine, the CEO there, Chip Blake, and I kind of queried him and said, do you have any idea what I should do with this? And, and he said, send it to Patrick Thomas, who was then at Milkweed. And, and Patrick essentially perked up right away and said, I think what you have here is basically the bones of a book. And I could really see, uh, I'd love to work with you on it basically. And, and what he did then was, um, he really teased out all of the elements. You know, I, I've used this example a number of times, but he would say, um, here you have a sentence about, the economic impact of the bonefish. 
it needs to be a 30 page chapter, you know? <laughs> uh-huh. So, um, or here you have a, a paragraph about how, um, the geologic construction of the islands, um, create this freshwater lens that then allow the bonefish, to, you know, the mangroves to grow and the bonefish to flourish and it needs to be a chapter and so on and so forth. So, um, so the, your, your question was how early on did I know? I'd say about after two years of fiddling around with it. That's what I, I think a lot of people don't understand. And, and I'm still learning is just how long the process of people writing these books, I mean, how long it can take from the initial idea to really getting going on it. Um, this is kind of a random question, but I was thinking about it. So, you know, you're, you're obviously a very skilled and experienced poet and then you, you write nonfiction. And so in poetry, I would guess, and I don't, I don't know hardly anything about poetry, but I would, I would guess, you know, you're focused on not only every word, but every syllable. I mean, just just the Mm -hmm. most minute, um, down to the most, the, the smallest detail of every aspect of it. And then, and so you could work on a sentence for, for weeks, I would guess. And then you go to having to crank out whatever, like 80,000 words. Right. And so how, how do you balance that in your head as, as an author? I mean, because I would think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I would think it would be real easy to get real bogged down given, yeah. given your, you know, your almost obsession with, with uh, words. That's a that's an awesome question, Ed. You know, um, you're right. You can't. I think it was Baudelaire said. You know, in poetry, there there are no matters of minutia. Yeah. So yeah. if you if you take that same um, approach to the construction of um, of a prose book, it can be maddening. I'm actually I'm working on my second book of nonfiction now, and I I found myself yesterday editing um, a chapter and. I was like, man, I've edited this sentence 15 times in the last three weeks. This is ridiculous. You know, it's time to move on. And and that doesn't mean that um, I don't think, you know, an an artist uh, is not the novelist James Salter, who spent a lot of time in Colorado. uh, He had a great line. He said, um, the secret of making a good book is simple. Discard anything that was good enough. You know, so you ne- you never want to just say, okay, that's good enough. But mm-hmm. at some point during the editing, you have to move on and say, um, someone needs to help me with this. You know, um, another great little tidbit I got again from this novelist friend of mine was that um, when we're when you're constructing a book made of prose, there must be some level sense of the density of each sentence, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the the density of a sentence from Cormac McCarthy is totally different from the density of of a sentence from Louise Erdrich or Jim Harrison. Right. Mm -hmm. But but the consistency throughout the book is there. And what what his comment was early on in Body of Water was, you know, if your sentences are logs that you're throwing on the fire, this one is burning at a different level length of time than the next you you can't throw in something that's just full of pitch and knots because it's gonna it's gonna burn differently sure you know? and the, re- the reader's gonna come upon it and say hmm that's not it's not quite right so that was a big challenge for me also um you know as far as converting the poetic brain to the um to the non-fiction brain um 
you know, poets are associative. They're certainly not linear. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I think nonfiction, for the most part, demands um, a little bit of, of sense of linearity. You know, you, you can skip around a good bit, but um, lyric, <laughs> lyric association is not necessarily um, the easiest thing to pull off in in, in nonfiction. You know, um, John McPhee has actually a great book. Um, called draft number four. Yeah, I've read it's that. Been, yeah, and um, I, so I was, you know, probably one of the coolest things that happened to me after Body of Water came out was um, to see this review um, that John Gearock gave it in um, uh, in the Wall Street Journal because I'd, I'd never met Gearock and I'd um, I'd read his books since I was 18, you know, 16, yeah. really, I'd read them all. And um, he talked a little bit about John McPhee's construction of his books. And I went, when draft number four came out, um, I went and read it and I said, son of a gun, you know, there's there's a lot to be said. McPhee basically lines out for, for listeners his formula for, or, or model, would you call it, for, for telling... Um, a story in a nonlinear fashion that accomplishes some more comprehensive narrative than otherwise would be accomplished via straight head narrative. Is that fair? Oh yeah. I mean, it's like reading a, I mean, I I thought of it more as reading like an engineering handbook Mm -hmm. than reading Mm -hmm. a book about how to write. I mean, there are graphs in the thing and there, there are charts about, and you know, like he talks about it, um, the arch druid book and, you know, I read that and I loved it, but when you see, what he put into that, just like mapping it out before he even started writing, it's it's unbelievable, right? And the fact that he actually comprehended that what he was doing was the most um, kind of amazing thing to me. It's a great book for anybody who is looking to create a work of nonfiction, but also people who just just read and want to engage with maybe more. Um, complex narratives you know um it's really fascinating i thought it was um a tough book to get through but a really really rewarding one when did teaching come into your life when did you decide because i can tell just by the way you explain this stuff it makes sense to me who is not an accomplished writer i mean i I admire writing so much and um but i and i admire writers so much but i'm not a writer but i the way you explain all this makes perfect sense to me so when did when did teaching come in? Well, you know, back to your first question. Um, as a guide, I, I, I'm a, you're always teaching, right? Yep. So, um, so that was probably my first real exposure to teaching um, was guiding, and um, or and even before guiding, trying to teach my dad to fly fish. My father grew up in Detroit, and he he was not a fisherman, but I wanted him along some of the time. And so I had to, you know, teach him or teach friends or teach girlfriends. Um, I, I had an amazing high school teacher, a man named Jim Colando in East Lansing high school in the middle of Michigan who, um, to whom I felt like I owed some debt, you know? So I, um, he was the reason I became a writer and, um, I thought, well, I'll be a high school teacher, you know, I'll be a high school English teacher. And, um, my first assignment, uh, my student teaching assignment was in uh, inner city Chicago at a 
uh, public school called Kenwood Academy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a, a wonderful kind of what, what they would call a host t- teacher or guest teacher, um, a woman named Miss Lacey. And she said, look, the only way you're going to learn anything is if I throw you into the fire. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm going to stand here with you for a week and make sure uh, there is no there's no revolution against you. But after that, you're on your own. And mm-hmm. uh, so that was my first my first teaching experience. And I, I, I pretty much decided at that point that, you know, anyone who teaches public school, let alone in, you know, the inner city and impoverished neighborhoods is deserves some level of, of sainthood. But, um, I also started, um, I started reading seriously then too, you know, um, I'd started reading in high school, but what I mean by reading seriously is, um, reading books, that I thought would help me learn how to construct my own writing further on down the road, you know, not, not reading books that had been assigned in in college or something like that. So, um, ironically I was reading, um, I was reading the meadow then by James Galvin on the subway and on the, um, you know, uh, on the, on the public transit in and out of Chicago every day. I lived kind of on the North side, but, um, I pretty much figured out then that, um, it would be really hard to to um, to be a full time teacher and have a writing life. Sure. Um, so um, after that, I kept guiding, and then I ended up in grad school in, at the University of Montana, and and I was lucky enough to, to be awarded a, a poetry fellowship. So I, I got to teach again, and um, that really rekindled my love for teaching, and I've, I've kept on with it. Um, I still teach occasionally. I was the um, William Kittredge Distinguished Writer in Residence a couple years ago at the U of M. Uh, I teach through our, our Beargrass workshops. But now, really, um, I, I feel like the this Beargrass Writing Conference that I, I host each year up at the Ebarl Ranch in uh, Greeno, Montana. And that's is, for people listening. That's Juanita Vera's ranch who I had on the podcast a while back and she's a badass. Go listen to that. Yeah, episode. Juan is, is the greatest and, and everyone up there is, is fantastic to put up with us, but we, you know, we can talk about that later, but, um, now those, the, you know, the folks, the writers, the distinguished guests who come up there, um, to speak and talk and read are, I love to think of them as just walking texts, you know, mm-hmm. uh, our classroom happens to be this immaculate 8,000 acre ranch with working horses and the Blackfoot running through it and, um, all kinds of critters and such. So, um, you know, I think, uh, for a long time, I thought that teaching had no bearing on one's ability to write, mm-hmm. meaning you can be a real good fisherman and a horrible fishing guide, or you sure. can be a real good fishing guide and a decent angler. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I never, I never come away from, from like a kick-ass lesson or, or a class, like a workshop or a lecture and feel like awesome, man, I'm ready to go write some more. You know, it's, it's always just the same level of exhaustion. I, I might feel after working a eight hour day at the desk, you know? Sure. So, um, so for a long time, I didn't necessarily feel that there was any coherence there. But what I do feel now is that whether I'm behind the oars or at the desk writing or or teaching, there is some level of 
communication that has to take place. Um, what I, what I see in my head, what I envision has to be communicated, transmitted, you know, um, to the listener or to the, to the angler or to the reader. Um, and so, you know, that's a realization that's taken me a long time to, to come to terms with. Like I said earlier, there's for many years, I felt some level of disconnect, uh, with all those disparate parts. And now I'm, now I'm like, okay, I'm the same dude, just <laughs> different venue. You know, It's funny. Cause we were talking before we started recording about how old we are and how we can't believe we're, we're in our early 40. We're, we're about the same age. And, but looking back, you know, I always felt like, I kind of knew what was going on and I had these very serious opinions about things and thought I kind of had it all figured out. But and maybe that this is what I'm getting ready to say is just another case of that. But I feel like now that like when I hit 40, it all kind of finally came together a little bit. And I could look back and kind of laugh at my old self. <laughs> but right. it's it's uh, it's weird how just in the last few years, I feel like all the different moving pieces from all these different parts of my life have all kind of consolidated to where they're supposed to be, which is right. kind of a, a unique feeling. I mean, it's a good feeling, but it's it's Isn't kind it of really? crazy. Yeah, yeah. It's wild. Yeah. You mentioned you, you went to grad school in Montana. Had you spent much time out west before that? I mean, did you go to Montana, obviously, for the, the great writing program, but was it also for the outdoor stuff as well? Yeah, I did. I'd, I'd spent – so um, in the winter of 94, uh, winter of 94, 95, I came out and spent a couple weeks in Bozeman. And then starting in the summer of 95 – I worked summer jobs in Bozeman and I had actually started guiding before I went to grad school. Mm -hmm. So, um, I was guiding down in, out of a little town called twin bridges that many people know probably for Winston fly rods. Yeah. Um, and, uh, that's where I started out. So it was, um, the, the Missoula connection was, um, a natural one. I had other opportunities, um, in less, fishier <laughs> uh environs but I, I i declined them you know because montana was by then uh, already very much um home for me were you um did you have an interest in the rockies as a kid in michigan or did that develop later on or when did you kind of get focused in on that area somewhere you thought you might want to be eventually well i i want to say Junior year, I had a good buddy, two of my dear friends, uh, and I took the train from Lansing to Denver and then caught a ride with our buddy's uncle who was on ski patrol at Breckenridge, and we skied for three days. So that was my first, you know, fall in love with the Rockies moment. Um, but that's probably the year after that. Uh -huh. uh, you know, I get it mixed up a little bit but um i had this wonderful english teacher who i mentioned to you jim colando um hand me a copy of a river runs through it and, oh wow um you know i'd i dabbled in writing barely um it was maybe safe ground for me in an otherwise tumultuous academic life you know um <laughs> Like I could write a five paragraph essay is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. But, um, he handed me that book and I, and I was completely transported. It was, um, you know, I like to, to 
self mythologize a little bit about it, but um, it was it was very much a transformative experience. I read it in in a day. Um, I'd I'd never read um, a an adult book uh, cover to cover like that. I probably hadn't read anything uh, cover to cover other than some hook and bullet magazine or bu- books, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that was. I mean, A, it was the impetus for me wanting to go west, number one. But B, and and probably more importantly, it was um, I was instantly charged with the the notion or really the command that I had to attempt to be a writer at that point. Because, yeah, I had fished a lot. You know, I love to fish. It was other than sports, which I loved and was was okay at. Um, fishing was something transcendent for me. Uh, now when I say that, I, I don't want to give people the wrong impression. I lived in East Lansing, Michigan, and our home water was the, the red cedar, which was this polluted, uh, tributary of the grand river that ran through Michigan state's campus. And, you know, it had smallmouth bass and pike and rock bass in it and, and the occasional, uh, salmon in the fall Mm -hmm. would run up from from the great lakes from lake michigan um but um nonetheless you know regardless of its uh, of its uncleanliness it was still a trans uh, a transporting thing for me to be able to um to fish like that and so you know we we all have those sensations in life whether it's you know an encounter with a person a loved one a uh, a stranger, um, food, wine, um, in, in this sense, like the wilderness, um, that when we see them articulated in language, you know, written, the written word, yep. there's suddenly becomes this, this, um, transformative experience. So that for me is what, you know, it happened. Um, and I like to tell the story that, I, that it happened in a day, maybe it happened in a week, but, um, regardless, at that moment, I thought, okay, this is something I have to, to attempt, you know. Uh, and it's a wonderful feeling to, to be inspired like that. But over time, you know, it becomes a, um, a bit of a, well, it's a charge. You know, it's a, it becomes a vocation. It's a calling. It's like, you know, someone like Juanita, who you mentioned earlier, she's an incredible conservationist and steward of the land, yep. right? Yep. So, that's her that's her calling it's her vocation she she doesn't just get to enjoy um the landscape right it's not she's not a tourist and so um she not only enjoys the landscape but there's some part of her brain that's burning at her to all right what do i need to do to make sure this is sustained for the next generation and the next and so i think um it's important for for artists um Nah, it's important for everybody to really recognize what was what was that moment that you experienced a sort of, you know, uh, slap on the face and said, OK, wake up. You got to do something here. You know? I think that's such a, a you put that perfectly. And I think it can be applied, you know, obviously to art, but really just you know, whatever you decide to devote your career to. Um, right. Because I. You know, my background before I started doing conservation full time is, is business. And I went to, you know, I'm an econ. I studied econ in, grad, in undergrad and then I got an MBA in finance. And mm. so just this endless, endless focus on business. And a lot of the people that I worked with, 
you know, the, nothing against them. Everybody needs to make a living. But, you know, the, the goal was I got to make money. I got to make money. I want to make as much money as possible. And I want to do corporate finance. Well, what kind of company do you want to work at? Well, I don't care. I just want to do corporate <laughs> finance. And, right. and so, you know, when you've got this calling, like you had the writing and, and I've come to realize that what I am passionate about is conservation. It, it is this, in a way, it's kind of like a curse and a blessing at the same time because you have this burning idea, like, I got to get this done. This is yeah. really important. And you can't really coast. But I think the alternative to that is just kind of cruising along and collecting a paycheck. And so I'd, you know, personally, I'd rather have the stress and kind of the waking up in the middle of the night thinking about it because I give a shit versus just, all right. Um, I made made a little more more money this year than I did last year now, so that's goal completed. You know, does that make any sense? It makes a world of sense. Yeah, I think it's you know, um, it's a conscious decision, and and I think um, you know, you wouldn't have it any other way, right? Oh yeah, no, definitely yeah. not. And it, in in a lot of ways, for me, I mean, you figured it out earlier than I did, but I, I wish I'd figured this shit out a while back. You know, sorry for my language, but I get I get fired up about it because it just makes everything so much more rich and it can make it more stressful and, um, and all that. But at the end, the experience is richer. And, um, you know, I think people, I had plenty of times leading up to now where I probably had that spark that I, if I had examined it closely, it may have made me change my direction at age 25 or age 30 or age 35. But I think it, it just took a while for me to, to realize that spark was firing off in my brain, whereas you saw it you saw it earlier on. But I think people just need to be aware that it's not just a one-time thing um, and, and it's just right. a happenstance. I mean, I think those sparks, if you're meant to be doing something, those sparks are happening all the time. They'll keep hollering at you, like your buddy you were mentioning from from North Carolina, you know. He, yeah. He, he, yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, so – Back to your writing for a little bit. I'm always interested in artists and their routines and how they crank out this creative work. Um, it seems like there's a mix on this podcast of, of a certain amount. Probably the majority treat it almost like they're working at, at a factory. They clock in, they sit down at the desk or at the easel, and they crank it out daily. And then there's another – a smaller percentage but that kind of do it as – as mood or as inspiration strikes, where do you fall on that spectrum? Well, I'm much, I, I fall much, most often with the former, you know, I, I have to do it every day. I'm, I'm very much a, um, momentum mm -hmm. oriented writer. Um, you know, if I pick, if I take a couple weeks off, for whatever reason, and and then I pick up something I've been working on. It seems incredibly distant to me, you know, um, a very very long lost relative. But if I'm working on on a, a piece of work every day, um, it seems a little more like a continual conversation. Yeah. So I I depend on that, and I um I try to work every day. I've been more and more. Um, you know, with kiddos, um, you end up taking time off on the weekends to ski or, or go to basketball or soccer games or track meets and stuff like that. And that used to bother me a lot. I would have this angst over it, you mm -hmm. know, and now I'm like, no, nope, I'm going to enjoy this Saturday. We're going to make French toast and 
play blackjack or and and go skiing and i'm not gonna feel guilty about it like i've lost some uh uh you know super valuable time at the desk Um, but i do it is um very important to me to work every day or at least five days a week and the longer the longer the project i'm working on you know right now i'm working on a new book of nonfiction. um the longer periods of time that I need. So uh, six, eight hours a day is not too much to ask. My brain seems to really shut down after that. Yeah. Um, I have some, you know, there's little tricks. I, I think like uh, um, I usually, I can work pretty steadily until two in the afternoon and then I'll, I'll fizzle out a little bit and I can either take like a, 10 minute nap with the dog on yeah, the yeah. or, um, or I can have a, an espresso or something like that. And then, and then, uh, as a friend of mine says, like, then you kind of fizzle out again around five, but if you give yourself a couple glasses of wine, you can push through another page. <laughs> so, um, you know, there's all these little, uh, all these little healthy stimulants, if you will. But, um, I, I, I feel like, if I'm working every day or almost every day is much more beneficial to me. I'm not a very, um, I think Rodan said, I, I, I can't believe in inspiration, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like I just have to be there every day. Um, and, uh, for me, that's the way it works. I wish I could just take two months off and then come fix everything that was wrong with, with my draft, but it doesn't, doesn't work for me that way. Where, like physically, where do you write? Do you have a, a certain room in your house or do you have, wh- where is, where is the spot? I've got this sweet little, um, I got a sweet little studio. Um, a couple years ago, I was fortunate enough to meet a buddy in town who was building these little spec studios, you know, yeah. um, but it's a 10 by 12. Uh, it's just maybe... 20 feet from my house uh the path is under three feet of snow today after <laughs> this blizzard we've had but um, yeah it's just 20 feet from the house it's got a little electric heat um <coughs> cedar ceiling and and fur floors all rehabbed from jobs this guy was working on and you know threw a uh, aluminum roof on it and and some siding and um shimmed it real tight so that it stays <clears throat> Once I heat it up in the morning with a little um, a little space heater, it stays warm all day. That's awesome. And um, it's fantastic to be able to get just 20 feet away from the house. You know, um, when I used to work in the basement, um, part of the issue was our our <laughs> our floors were the ceiling downstairs, you know? Oh, and that's how my basement is, man. That's the same challenge. I, uh, the reason I ask you all these questions is completely self-serving because I'm trying to figure this out for myself. So I keep, keep going. <laughs> I would say, I would say it's worth, you know, I can't, my, my wife, Mary, always jokes that I can't tell a screwdriver from a hammer and that's true. Um, but I would say it's worth every cent to, to get a little space outside of, um, outside of the house because you know the kids if they know if you're out there that hey you're out there and they can make themselves a sandwich or or whatever and um and when you're downstairs and you hear them 
hollering or crying or something or whatever. you know not that they do that a lot but you you, you feel guilty if you're not up there helping right i agree so 100 um, yeah so um i think that there's a lovely little um disconnect that happens in that 20 feet between the back porch and the um uh and the space and also it's it's sweet this is my friend caleb casper he has um a company called Brome Designs in Missoula, and he just did this amazing job. He built built the desk in tight. He he built me a little loft bunk, and the the girls will come up there when they're home from school and and you know read, or if they're homesick, they can sit up there and watch movies while I work. And um, I love it. It's it's um, it's one of my favorite parts of the house, and it's not even part of the house. You know? That's that's awesome to hear because like I've really been struggling um, with any of these little projects I have, the podcast, obviously I need quiet for that, but then just there's some writing projects that I'm working on that I'm going to ask you about after we quit recording. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so wait, so are you downstairs now? Yeah. In the basement downstairs? and it's, you know, loud and, and, you know, I, same thing. I feel like I should be up there helping and this and that. And so we've got a shed in the backyard and I think I'm going to finish it out. Just, you know, put some insulation in it put some plywood on the walls and, and that'll be a spot for all my books too. Cause the books are getting yeah. completely out of control. Cause now people oh, yeah. send me books for free because this podcast and my wife's yeah. like, all right, this is getting really out of control. Um, and she's so oh, patient yeah. and so great. And she puts up with me, but, but then the books need their own spot as well. So it's, um, all right, we'll talk more about this cause I might Good. need some specs. Yeah, man, you got, it. You got it. um, Oh, and one other thing, I, the reason I asked that is because when I was looking up some stuff about you online, I saw something and you had mentioned a shack where you did some writing. And, and that term is funny because that term has come up several times. David Gessner, who we were talking about before we started recording, who I had on the podcast, who's awesome, um, he's got a writing shack. And then Hampton Sides, who I've had on the podcast twice, yeah. he's got a, a shack. It sounds like his shack might be more for like drinking bourbon and listening to music. <laughs> but I think it, that seems to be the common theme with, with you writers is having a, a separate space where you can just get in there and just, just crank it out. Pretty cool. Yeah. And I even, I even go so far as like, w let's say I have a, um, let's say I have a day where, I've got to do a bunch of desk work, you know, answer a bunch of emails, do some uh, administrative stuff for this Beargrass conference or, um, you know, promote a book or something like that. I won't even do it out in the, in the shack. Really? No, I just do it on the kitchen table because I, you know, like like most like many uh, sportsmen and outdoors people i would assume you know i'm superstitious about that stuff i don't want it i don't want that all that garbage energy in the um in the field and the energy field if you will i i get that i completely get that you don't want to contaminate it with all that junk no. i mean it's a creative space almost like a dojo you know when you go in there it's time to get to work and it's not for messing around and have you ever read the war of art by stephen pressfield no, I've never read that. I'm writing it down right now, though. Oh, man, you will love it. You don't need it. Um, but it for somebody like me, it is it is amazing. And it's all about that, that 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 kind of idea about just approaching your work with this with, as a practice and um, fighting what he calls the resistance, which is this this urge to do anything except the work you're supposed to do. And Gee, um, man, it's so it's it's incredible how tempting it is to 
you know, give in to that. Is it for you now at this point? Like, are you, is it still a struggle when you go in there? Like, oh, well, I want to play with my phone or I need to. No, I don't bring my phone in there. But what will happen is I'll, you know, I'll work for a couple hours and then I'll come in and I'll say, all right, I'm going to make myself a cup of tea or I'll have lunch. And then I'll say, all right, well, let's fiddle around on Instagram and see, you know, see what Ed's got going on, <laughs> you know, and then then you're just down that that rabbit hole. I think I sent my buddy a, a video the other day. I can't remember. Oh, I, it was this ridiculous um, European hunting video where this goofball tries to shoot a pheasant with um, a bow and arrow, and then he <laughs> he 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 wings it, uh-huh. but he doesn't kill it. And he's then he's running after it, trying to throw his bow at the pheasant. You know, <laughs> and uh, I know just a complete idiot. So I sent it to my buddy who's a hunting partner of mine. And, and he said, you must've been farther down the Instagram rabbit hole than you've ever been to. And it was, you know, he had it right. You know, I didn't, it wasn't the first sweep that, that uncovered that. So yeah, I do feel, I mean, it's not, I don't think it says anything about, um, a lack of love or passion for the, for the work, but it just says something about how distractible our, my brain is right now, you know? Um, and I, you know, in the, um, I find like in the middle of, um, of hunting season, I bird hunt a lot. I have an amazing, lovely male English setter named Zeke who mm-hmm. takes me all over the, the hills and, and, um, and such for upland birds. And, um, you know, I find like my concentration that time of year is at its at peak, you know, after, um, when I'm in the middle of that kind of season, I can come back to the desk and feel really, uh, clear headed about things, you know, and the only thing I can, I can do in the winter to, to feel similarly is maybe a, a day skiing or, um, I do a lot of, uh, hot yoga, Bikram yoga. Oh yeah. That stuff's good stuff. <laughs> yeah. It's great. And that, that can, that tends to burn off that monkey brain, you know, the, um, the one that, won't get you going back to the to the guard to the to the television of your phone oh yeah the (laughs) the baby television in our pocket that's exactly right um go ahead go ahead well you but you know i don't i don't want to come off as i don't want to imply that it's that it's all bad because it's not like you and i were saying beforehand um aside from the fact that you started the podcast so that your wife would actually listen to you you know um (laughs) People do. People, really wonderful people are engaged on social media all the time. And, and um, so it just takes a little more discipline than I'm able to provide most of the time, I think. you know. Well, and you got to remember that Facebook, who owns Instagram, has teams and teams and teams of very <laughs> highly paid psychologists figuring out how to make that stuff addictive as possible. So, I mean, if you can control it a little bit. That's that's better than most, um, but I think there is a lot of good to come that comes out of it. I mean, me and you connected because of it, so it's that's awesome. um, yeah. And so it's just it's like any tool; it just needs to be used for a specific purpose. Um, so one more, well, I say one more question, and then I'll probably have a lot more. Um, one more question about writing: when you put out a poem or a book 
and and you've put your your heart and your soul into it. And I would imagine with all, but especially with poetry, I mean, there, I, it seems like there's something um, you're, you're kind of exposing yourself and your inner thoughts, and and it's it's an intimate kind of look into your brain. So when you put something like that like that out. Is there self-doubt that comes into your mind? Um, and if so, or or almost like concern that people are going to be judging it or how is this going to be received? And and I would imagine that's probably the case with the book because you're going to be getting reviews. Is there is there like self-doubt that needs to be overcome for that? And if so, have you figured out over your career some techniques for getting past that? Again, I'm asking for a friend, not for myself. <laughs> Yeah, man, that's a great question. I, it's funny when you, you know, when you ask it, the obvious answer is to me is yes, um, there is. Um, I don't think I'm interested in writing anything that doesn't risk some level of um, emotion, feeling, even sentimentality. I don't want to be a sentimental writer, but I think, you know, as William Kittredge said, if, if, if a writer's not risking sentimentality then or, or risking emotional vulnerability, then there's really no, I have no interest in it, you know? Um, so there is, I, I mean, several of the poems in my second book of poems, this book called Earth Again, um, were, ve- I mean, all of them were, but, but several of them were, um, how do I say this? There, there was a certain level of um, uh, intimacy to them, physical intimacy uh, sure. depicted and such. Um, and at the time, I remember not being um, at all bothered by that. One, one thing the poet can always hide behind is the the quote construct of the I. You know, the first person I. Mm-hmm. That um, that the I is not the I in the poem is not the author, right? You know, and, and Yates talked about this. He said, look, I'm not, I'm never the same person when I sit down to write as I am when I'm taking my tea and eating my oats or something to that extent, you know, and anybody who's written enough, um, would agree, I think with that, but man, um, you know, nowadays I look back and I'm thinking, what are my kids going to think when they read this? (laughs) Um, But at the same time, you know, um, so I have, um, I'm probably, you know, more interested in talking about body of water a, cause I, I know you, you just read it and B cause people run rightly. So when they hear folks talking about poetry, but I wrote, um, I have a new book of poems coming out called ragged anthem and it is, um, it's very much a, I, I call it, um, well, it, it, it delves a very difficult four, three year period in my life. And, um, it's, it's, it's very dark in places, you know, really? um, but I, I feel like it is to, to use a, a, a phrase, a friend used to describe it. It's a record of deliverance, if you will. And so um, it's an important record, I think, because people, um, I hope, will encounter it. And and if um, they are or have experienced some level of, you know, emotional trauma in their life, then then it will will help them through that. But it will it would it will only help them if it 
again, risks some level of um, emotional vulnerability, right? Sure. Um, so um, the answer to your question is yes. I I don't feel a lot of self-doubt about the quality of the work, you know, um, because I've worked as hard as I can on those poems, right? Mm-hmm. Um, not to say that they're perfect or anything like that. I just mean – I, I, you know, probably every, if the if the book's 70 pages, each of those poems saw 30 some drafts. Wow. And that's, you know, at some point you have to put it aside and go, that's the best I can do. So I don't feel any level of, I, I feel that, you know, there's a level of rigor to them and I've done my best on a technical level. But as far as like, I'm going to get up and read these poems, um, to people, yeah, I do. Um, I feel that. And more and more, I'm interested. I'm less interested in reading poems to an academic audience. You know, really, I'm way more interested in um, reading them to audiences who um, who wouldn't normally encounter poetry. I've got a, um, a real good friend. Probably he's probably my first reader. He's a um, singer songwriter out of uh, Massachusetts, named Jeffrey Focalt. Um, mm-hmm. He plays. Um, he comes through the West quite a bit. Uh, but a few years ago, he convinced me when this last book, Earth Again, was out to get up on stage with him uh, a couple times during a sh- during his shows, you know, and uh, and read with um, he and his um, drummer, Billy Conway, like backing me acoustically. Cool. Uh, and that was a. Um, super frightening experience, you know, um, but really rewarding as well because I was able to read poems to people who, um, you know, wouldn't necessarily show up at a bookstore on a Wednesday night, uh, or at the university lecture hall or something like that to hear, to hear poems read. So, well, that's, that takes me to a question I wanted to ask you about poetry. Cause like I said, I don't, I really don't know anything about it and I'm going to get your, your books, but what, like, if I if I wanted to poetry one hundred and one and wanted to start reading it, what how how would you recommend I go about that? Like, what what poem what poets should I look at that are somewhat user friendly, and mm-hmm. what should I be looking for when I read them? Because I've I've asked that question before to somebody on the podcast and didn't really get that much of a specific answer. Yeah. Um, what, like, and I understand it's not just like a black and white thing, like a math problem or something, but what's the entry point into poetry? I think the entry point is the opposite of the way we're asked to enter it from an early age, right? Mm-hmm. The way we're often asked as a you know middle school or a high school or even an undergrad is to say, What's the meaning of this poem, right? Um, what does it mean? And we've, you know, we've gotten away from that a little bit in pedagogically, but um, you know, that's the wrong way to go about it. Like, what does a what's a mountainside blooming in seven different species of wildflowers backed by a grand peak? and snowfield club covered in, you know, cloud shadow. What does that mean? 
<laughs> you're not searching for meaning there. You're searching for experience, right? Sure. Um, what do I experience when I engage with the poem? Um, so I think, you know, thinking of, um, of poetry in terms uh, of like, how would you engage with a glass of wine? Right. Mm -hmm. Or, or how would you engage with a, um, a jazz composition, say by Dexter Gordon, right. Or, um, or Miles Davis or Coltrane or anybody like that. You know, you, you start, when you start listening to jazz, you, um, you pick up on little things. You say, okay, I can hear the bass there. I'm going to follow the bass for a little while. Right. Um, or, uh, a glass of wine, like, God, I think I taste some, um, you know, a little bit of tobacco in there. What is that? You know, or a little spice, right? So as you you um, spend more time with poetry, you start to, okay, I'm going to, here, I'm going to read this poem for the for the rhythm, right? The next time I read it, I'm going to read it for the image. The next time I'm going to read it for the cadences that the syntax uh, kind of teases out. Um, and then maybe by the fourth or fifth time, I'm going to read it all, and all of that is going to, kind of join into some uh unified experience um because i do think experience is really what um we're looking for it also poetry is a tough um genre to engage with because it forces us to slow down sure um and as you were saying earlier you know to ponder each, each syllable each um each each word um each image the entire visual package of it, you know, um, all of these elements play a role in how we experience it. I, I, um, I like this Gary Snyder definition. He says, um, poetry is the skilled and inspired use of the voice and language to embody rare and powerful states of mind that are in immediate origin, personal to the singer, but at deep levels common to all who listen. Um, and I mean, that sounds a little heady, but it's really not. I think what he's saying is, you know, poetry is at its, at its best. Um, it's a completely unifying genre, right? The, sure. the, um, it, the, the poet and the reader can experience, you know, almost the, ex the exact precise, um, sense of emotions and feelings and experience if the language is, is right, you know? Um, so, but it's also a bodily art, you know, it's a spoken art. And so, um, it's probably best read out loud and we don't do that a whole lot anymore. You know, um, as you say, you experience it probably first through the syllables. So it's, it's a felt art and, um, it's crazy, man. You probably just had like 20 people, 30 people, hundred people tune off of the podcast. <laughs> No, it will see. It doesn't matter because this is only for me. Like if anybody else wants to listen, that's awesome. But very, very selfish project here because it's only for. This is what I want to know. So, <laughs> good. Uh, no, and Fair and um, I've. This sounds kind of crazy, but I think you'll understand what I what I mean. I've had the experience before, where like with music, if if there's music and somebody's singing or, or whatever in a different language, that you can almost understand that there's something to it beyond the words ah, like there's like yeah. a deeper level that where right. the, the language doesn't actually matter and so i feel like what you're saying with poetry is 
you got to read it and look at it from all these different levels to really understand what it is built on, which is beyond language. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, a poet like, um, a poet like James Galvin for, especially for people in the West, um, I feel like his work is entirely accessible, Mm -hmm. you know, um, poetry's crazy, man. It really, (laughs) really is. Um, but it's also for, for someone like me, it's a, it's a part of how I survive as a human being, you know? Um, I, I, I love, um, Jim Harrison's work and I was fortunate enough to, to call him a really dear friend. That's amazing. Yeah. Late in his life. Um, and I spent a lot of lovely time with him, but he's someone who, if you think about it, I mean, he published, I want to say 15 full length collections of poems. You know, he was still writing poetry, um, until he actually died while he was composing a poem. Um, and he died while he was composing a poem. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't was, know that. He's, yeah. He's writing a poem, um, in Arizona. Um, and there's a, a lovely elegy to him by, um, Tom McGuane in the New Yorker. He and McGuane were lifelong friends. They were actually born on the same day. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, but there's a lovely depiction of that, um, of that kind of an elegiac depiction of Harrison writing that last poem. But, um, you know, why Harrison was a world renowned novelist, you know, he would walk down the street in Paris and people would run up to him with copies of his books in their hand and ask him to, um, you know, autograph them. And, and, um, he was, um, a beloved author and novelist and prose writer. And, you know, why would he keep writing poetry? Because he had to, you know, it was essential to his, his, his way of survival. And, um, I think a poem says what nothing else can Mm -hmm. in a way that only a poem can, you know? Um, and that's why we keep digging at them, I think, because as poets, um, we think, you know, um, I'd say this another way if I could, but the only way I can do it is, is here in, in, and counted syllables or, and measured, you know, measured lines and, and, and all that stuff. Um, the, the poet, uh, Christian Wyman, who edited poetry magazine for, for a long time and, and now teaches at Yale Divinity School. Um, he has a great, uh, essay called, um, a piece of prose, mm-hmm. you know, and he's talking about the difference between poetry and prose. And he, um, he references a line by um, Robinson Jeffers, a poet who lived out on the California coast in Big Sur. And, and Jeffers says, I can lie in prose, <laughs> you know, um, and uh, and you can, you know, you sure. Can, um, but but poetry sits the poet down on the blank page, you know, against the uh, against the silence and says, OK. What what do you have to say here? And and if it if it's if it's not honest emotionally or um, if it's not linguistically rigorous enough, then it stands out, right? Sure. Um, so 
I don't know, man. It's crazy. I look at it every every now and then and think, what God's name? Why would anyone subject themselves to this? But <laughs> that's again, man. That's why. I mean, it's it it may be easier to not be have your life so wrapped up in that, but it would be boring, man. You know, I mean, you're obsessed with it. I love I love hearing it, and and I mean, it's what gives your one of the many things that gives your life meaning and. You don't have a choice, you know. I, right. I, I yep. love it. I, so I, I'll put links. You said your new one is called Ragged Anthem. Is that correct? Yeah, Ragged Anthem. And yeah. what are the what are the other ones called? I'll put links to everything on the notes sure. so Ragged people can buy them. Is, um, Ragged Anthem is the new one. It's coming out this spring. And then Earth Again is is my second book of poems. And and, and going back any further than that would, would get you into um, material that I'm not comfortable talking about. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll put links to all those because, I mean, oh, talking about great. where should where should people start? I mean, I think people who've listened to this and heard your story and, and kind of see how your brain works. I feel like that's if you've never read poetry, this is as good a place to start as any because now you got this background. And so um, that's where I'm going to start. I'm excited, so. too. I, I've got there's actually like, you know, three or four um, hunting poems in this book. Cool. Um, yeah, there's a there's a there's several. Um there's one where I, um, my son Luca is an incredible runner. He's, he's blazing fast. And there was one day, uh, around Christmas where I asked him to, um, to go out and clean this pheasant I had shot like a couple days before I was cooking Christmas dinner and he, we'd given him a knife for Christmas. Yeah. And, um, so I said, you know, um, can you go out there and, um, I, I had already had plans to like make stock out of everything but the legs and the breasts. Sure. You know? And um, so I said, can you, he knows how to clean a bird. I said, can you, um, can you breast it out and cut the legs off? And he came back in with um, two breasts on a, on a plate, you know? And he said, as a runner, I cannot cut the legs off of another. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, um, and he's a tough kid, you know, I mean, he's, he's very, um, he's very much a hunter and, and, and whatnot. But, um, so, you know, those are the kinds of questions that we can, can engage with in poetry. Um, but again, like, I think the first question you asked is how do you approach it? And, and I think, um, poetry doesn't, um, have to give us answers to questions really it's probably um best thought of as something that forms questions nothing else could ask right no other genre or art could ask and so it often asks us to kind of remain in in um a state of what Keats called negative capability, you know, mm -hmm. the ability to remain in uncertainties without any grasping after fact or reason. And, and that mystery, that level of like, who, um, maybe there's something here that I don't know, you know, um, which back to what you were saying about the, about turning 40, I think part of, you know, entering middle age is, uh, coming to terms with, all we don't know, right? Um, and, yeah, that's and, no, that's exactly. Sorry to interrupt, but I, I had to say that you know you said that 
it's not about finding the answer, but I feel like the answer is there is no answer. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. The, you know, um, I forget who said it, but you know, one poet said, um, my wisdom is the accumulation of all that I do not know. Basically, you know, um, there's so much, um, out there that remains a mystery to us. And, and I think poetry keeps good poetry, keeps engaging with that sense of mystery and that sense of approaching the world with a, a vulnerability, you know, um, yes. again, back, back to that notion, like I can lie in prose. Um, if you're, if you're lying on, on the poetry page, like if you're faking it, it's so easy to notice because people are paying attention to, um, so carefully to, to the language you're using, you know, um, that's why my wife, Mary likes podcasts so much. And she said, you know, whatever you do, be honest because people can tell when you're not right. Oh um, yeah, definitely I'm, can. This is, it's no BS. Cause we talk for so long, you know, if you're doing some TV show or something, it's five, 10 minutes edited down. Whereas on these things, you dig into the details, which is exactly why I loved listening and why I decided I wanted to start one. And can you can you can sniff out real quick if somebody's full of it or not, or at least I feel like I can. Yeah. Have you ever got I mean, not, not to sidetrack here, but have you ever gotten in in one of those conversations and you thought, oh, man, like this is not going to go well. Surprisingly, on this podcast, I've yet to have what I would consider a dud. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, there've been different personalities and and different outlooks and all that, but but I mean, I feel like I feel like if people are willing to be honest, it doesn't matter if they're doing work that I would consider boring or or, or their hobbies that have nothing. We have no overlap in our interests. I feel like if if somebody's willing to be honest, I can generally find something that I would consider interesting. And so I guess just through through luck, really, because I don't know a lot of these people I get on the podcast. I've just ended up having a lot of people who are willing to to be honest and um and so the conversations are are genuine and it's been it's it's really cool cuz in this world of social media and stuff being surface level and kind of bs and to be able to have these in-depth conversations with people that most of whom I don't know it's really really it's awesome I love it and other people seem to love it so that's cool yeah it is it's 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 a fantastic um conduit really for conversation and and um again i mean back to the social media world um i see a lot of amazing stuff happening uh inspiring stuff happening um or at least inspiring people connecting on on social media yeah i mean i feel like a lot of this podcast is is a result of social media so i I need to quit just giving it this blanket bashing because that goes back to you know, the, the, the answer is there is no answer. There's no right or wrong. It's all gray. And so it's it's really, you know, like you and I wouldn't be talking. Juanita and I wouldn't have talked. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's a great tool for that. And, um, yeah, it's it's all been – this whole podcast thing has just blown my mind. Um, but it's it's been awesome. Um, so I can't believe this. I just looked at the clock, and we're at an hour and ten minutes. <laughs> and I feel like we oh, just great. started. <laughs> It's just awesome. That that means it's good. Um, but in I, I want to respect your time because I know you got a lot going on. And if I'm up in Montana this summer, we'll do a part two because in person. Um, 
That's awesome. But can I run through some of these quick questions I have that I ask everybody yeah, at the do, end? Let's do rapid fire. Sweet. Um, so what are your favorite books related to the West? One or two that come to mind as just being kind of the best? Oh, man. It's you, hard. You, you squeezed me when you said related to the West there. Um, I and, don't ever go very far without the poetry of James Galvin, which I've, I've mentioned I think is kind of seminal to the West. Sure. Um, an old classic that I think people should not uh, forget about is um, Gretel Ehrlich's The Solace of Open Spaces, um, which is a lovely collection of essays um, really about and, and actually more prescient than ever, probably with um, the kind of endangerment of, of open spaces that we see happening across the West. Um, man, I, I just read a book, a novel that is, well, Harrison once said that the New York publishing industry thought of um, everything west of the East River as regional literature. So <laughs> I'll take that, um, take that little line and go with um, a novel I just read by a novelist, late novelist named Richard uh, Wagamese. Uh, he wrote an incredible novel called Indian Horse, uh, which is also published by Milkweed. And um, it's a book about um, a young – you want me to describe it? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to hear about it. Yeah. Okay. So um, it's a book about a young man, uh, a young native boy um, whose family is broken up um, by the – early Jesuit missionaries to Manitoba. I hope I'm getting that province right in the twenties. I'm terrible with history, but, um, basically, um, his, his sister gets kidnapped by missionaries. Um, his brother gets abducted basically, uh, and taken to a school. His parents fall under the spell of the bottle and his grandmother tries to kind of resurrect what remains of the family by taking them to um, this place called God's Lake, which is his um, uh, the, his great grandfather's ancient ancient uh, native ground, right? Uh huh. Yeah. So, um, I would this will sound small or, or kind of smart, but hijinks ensue, right? And, yeah. and the family <laughs> um, the family breaks up, and the grandmother takes him basically back to civilization. Um, where he ends up at this brutal um, Indian reservation school. Um, the only saving grace of which is that Saul, who's the main character, learns to play hockey there. And he learns basically by, you know, um, shuffling frozen horse turds around on this ice rink. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and he basically... Um, is incredibly gifted at it and, and earns his, his way out of this super traumatic, um, the super traumatic place. So that's, his, you know, I'm only 50 pages in there in my description, but it's a tremendous novel, um, told with such courage and emotional clarity. Um, and in many ways it's, it's like, it's, it's uplifting. Um, and in other ways it's, it's tragic, but it's just as good as novels get. It's a short, 260 page novel i think like i don't um 
I never look any farther than Tom McGuane yeah. for, um, for great novels or short stories about the West. You know, um, I remember picking up Gallatin. I'd read everything by McGuane, but I remember um, picking up Gallatin Canyon, which was um, a collection of stories that came out probably 10 or so years ago. Yeah, I remember when that came out because I think I lived in Wyoming and I used to drive through Gallatin Canyon all the time, but I, I yeah, hadn't read it. Heading up into Montana, and, and um, I'd written a lot of short stories as an undergrad, and um, I was thinking maybe I'll get back into to, to writing short stories, you know. And I read Gallatin Canyon straight through, and I thought, nope, I'm never going to try. <laughs> this is just way too good, you know. So, um, I mean, I, I love I love McGuane's work, and I think he's he's certainly um, one of our our best prose writers, prose stylists, if not our best in the country. And, you know, that's not even, um, that's not even mentioning his, his fishing essays or his hunting essays, like the ones that are in outside chance or the longest silence. There's nothing, nothing even approaching those, you know? Um, I did just read a book too. Um, you know, if you're looking for future podcast guests, there's a writer from Missoula, this guy named Bryce Andrews, who's written a wonderful nonfiction book called down from the mountain about uh-huh. um, the grizzly bears on the mission uh, coming out of the mission range north of us in towns like St. Ignatius. And, yeah. 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 I know um, that area. And, you know, and, and Ronan and, and um, it's a fascinating study um, about how there's a, it follows the life of this one grizzly bear Um and really exposes some of the disservices we're doing to this large predator, namely by um, planting corn, mm-hmm. uh, which is essentially the equivalent of, you know, Big Macs to um, to large predators like sure. like grizzlies. Um, you know, they get into the corn and um, they just can't stop eating it. Right. Uh, and yet it has little or no nutritional value. They're not expending any energy to, to forage it. Right. Um, and so they just end up um, sitting and sitting and sitting. Their teeth decay. They they won't move until uh, a combine is within like 20 feet of them or something like that. Um, so it's um, it's a, an awesome study on. um how we're engaging with um, the wildest members of our um, non-human community, I guess I would call it. You that know? sounds really interesting. And I've, I've never really read a book really about bears. I've read, I read one recently just about wolves that was super interesting, but um, that one sounds good. And then I'm, I always need um, fiction recommendations because as people who listen to this thing know, for some reason I have such a hard time reading fiction. I just, I don't do it, but whenever I whenever I find a good one, it always makes me regret that I how little I I do read fiction. So all those are that, those were were perfect recommendations. So I'll, I'll have links to all that stuff. That's awesome. Cool, cool. Um, this is kind of about your fishing life. I'm not asking for specific spots, obviously, mm-hmm. but is there a specific river in the West that you absolutely love? That you you would say is your favorite river? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, I guide on the Bitterroot, Rock Creek, 
Clark Fork and the Blackfoot. Um, those are all rivers that come right into Missoula. Basically, you know, the, the confluences of those rivers um, all occur within stone's throw of Missoula. Um, so they're all favorites at different times of years, uh, at different times of the year, you know? And, sure. um, um, but if I get out of that, um, that kind of home water, um, list, then I love the big hole. I, I, I love the big hole. That's probably my favorite place in Montana. I love it. Isn't it wonderful? It's so, you know, distinct. It, r- it runs through such uh, disparate country. You know, there's that kind of alpine meadow stuff on the on the higher end. And then you go through the canyon and then you get into the bottomland. And um, we used to do a lot of um, overnight family floats on it, you sure. know, uh, on the lower end. And, and um, I love it. And I, I'm fortunate to have a couple, a real good buddy who still guides down there. So I, I get a lot of pictures and, and and stories from it and um yeah it's a wild river it's wonderful yeah that whole area is just beautiful that was one of my first the first places i ever fished when i moved out west and um, i think it's it'll always have a special place i need to get back up there um so next to last question um knowing everything you know about the west all the time you spent outdoors and on rivers and writing and thinking about the west um it if you could make a request or maybe offer some words of wisdom to people that listen to this podcast, and it's just people who love the West in one way or the other, just like me and you, um, in different ways, you know, some through athletics, some through fishing, hunting, conservation, ranching. If you could offer them some wisdom or ask them to do something, take some action, does anything come to mind? You know, um, I stumbled on something the other day. You were asking about um, – good films and um i re- uh, steve ranella was in town in missoula for the missoula doc fest and i got to see um his new documentary i think it's called stars in the sky uh-huh it's just out i think it i want to say it premiered here um but it was it's you know in keeping with um everything those guys do at meat eater it was fantastic um but I had forgotten that Teddy Roosevelt was guided when he came out and shot those first two bison, right? Yep. And I thought to myself, man, and now no one out there can steal this, okay? Because I might use this someday in an article or or what. But I thought to myself, what a fantastic um, tiny hero in American history, not Teddy, obviously, to whom we owe a great, great, great um, amount of of thanks. But what about that guide, right? Oh yeah, Who essentially was the conduit to inspire these great acts of conversation or conservation. Sure. And um, so I thought to myself, you know, um, it's not all bad to be a um, a boat jockey for 20 years as sure. I have, you know, somewhere along the line, um, it stands to reason that, um, we might be that person who helps someone else encounter, uh, wild places, rivers, fish, game landscape, um, in such a way that they can make 
a sweeping change that we as an individual might not be able to. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. And so, um, so that's, I guess what I would say is I was inspired by that, um, by that guide in the, in the story. Um, because even though I have a wonderful relationship with, with most of my clients, many of whom are friends, I've been guiding them for 15 or 20 years. There are still plenty of days when it's, it's work, right? You oh, know, yeah. You get up, you got to get lunch ready. You got to clean the boat. You got to gas up. You got to make sure you're not going to fight with your old enemy at the put in or something like that. And, <laughs> and, um, and so, um, I was inspired by, by that film anyway, in that moment where they, they shine a tiny little light on, on Teddy's guide. And I thought, you know, we can all be that, that person in the West. We can all, whether we have visitors whether we um we have a career in the um you know in the outdoor rec industry whatever we can all be that person who um not only stewards and appreciates the land but maybe serves as a as that link to someone who says holy smokes man i didn't know this was out here we have to we have to save it we have to preserve it um i think that's great it, and i've never thought about it in that way but that's true i mean to to want to protect these places you have to love the places and to love the places you need to get out in them and and guide you know guides are are the way that that happens whether it's fishing guides or you know a knolls instructor or you know any right. outward bound instructor i mean it's those people that introduce you to it that is that first spark you know so that's i think that's awesome man that's that's a really good good way to wrap it up um so how how can people connect with you obviously i'll have links to all your books and then the social media we keep talking about. Yeah, How can they well, find I mean, you on there? I've already confessed I'm a, I'm a rabid social media. <laughs> <you know? laughs> I really only got an Instagram account like two months ago or something like that. But um, Instagram is great. I have a web page that's C, the letter C, Dombrowski.com. Um, and those are great ways. My Actually, you know what? My email is on my web page too. Um, so – you know, anyway, I, I love, I love hearing from people. Yeah. You were responsive to me just out of the blue. So I, I appreciate it, man. This was really, really cool. And I feel like we got a lot more to talk about, but, but thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Really appreciate it. Oh, you're so welcome, Ed. And I'm, I'm, I love what you're doing and, and I'm, I'm excited. I want you to get up here um, this summer. We can do a little river edition. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast, and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me, and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read, 
Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, you can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.